Hello and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Delete. My guest today is the amazing Jess Phillips. She is a Labour Party politician and has been an MP for Birmingham Yardley since 2015. Prior to becoming an MP, Jess worked within the charity and community sectors and was selected to be the Victims Champion for Birmingham, working with police and support groups. Her previous works include a book called Every Woman, One Woman's Truth About Speaking the Truth, which was shortlisted for the Parliamentary Book Awards in 2017. Her next book, her most recent book that's out now, is called Truth to Power. And it's a very powerful little book. You will see it in bookshops now. It is yellow. It is a smaller sized book, but it is full of amazing inspiration to those of us who want to speak out at a time where we might feel that the world isn't listening. Jess herself is no stranger to speaking truth to power herself. You might have seen a lot of clips from her in the House of Commons speaking up and speaking out. And this book will help you dig deep, get organised and find the courage and the tools to speak up yourself and make a difference. I really enjoyed recording this episode with Jess. She gives some really amazing practical advice. We talk about the amazing case studies and interviews and, and women and men she spoke to to create this book and why staying quiet at the moment doesn't really sound like an option. Hope you enjoy this episode. As usual, if you did, please leave a rating or a review on iTunes. And I look forward to seeing you next week. Last time you had a book out, I don't know how long ago it was, but do you remember you invited a couple of people into the House of Commons? Yes, I do. That was amazing. <laughs> I'd never been inside and you gave a little tour and you were like, that's where we do this, that's where we do And it was incredible. Yeah, I mean, I think that you start to get used to the House of Commons uh, when you go there a lot. I remember the feeling I had the very first time I ever walked in as a Member of Parliament. And I, I think I'd only been in the building twice before I was elected to Parliament. It, I wasn't somebody who worked there beforehand and just thinking like you can close your eyes and see the suffragettes sort of chained to the to the railings and Churchill making speeches and the bombs dropping in the war it is such a historic mm. place and that's only even in the last hundred years you could take it back there, there is a shuttlecock in the ceiling in Westminster Hall that was apparently hit up there by Henry VIII oh my it is a magnificent place to work but you do sort of it becomes like wallpaper to you when it is your office and you're trudging around and it's sort of slightly irritating because it's massive. What it needs desperately is those walkways that you have in airports. You know, that move, moving travelators, because it takes ages to get around. I think I took a wrong turn to the toilets or something and got really lost. And I mean, someone was like, hello, come (laughs) come back down that corridor. But I I just I felt like I could get really lost in there. I still get lost all the time. Sometimes you have to go and see a minister to talk to them about something that you're annoyed about or that you want changing. And they will say something like, oh, I'm in the star chamber corridor. And you think, what? (laughs) I don't know where this star chamber corridor is. And then you end up just wildly walking around ministerial corridors with like ministers of state looking out the door at you saying, you all right, Jess? You're a bit lost. I'm like, and you have to fake it, don't you? You Oh, no, I I totally intended to walk past your door 17 times. (laughs) So the first book, it was called Every woman mm-hmm. that was what we were there for that mm-hmm. it was a dinner i think it was it we was had, felt we had a big dinner and it was and... just a really small crew of female journalists it yeah. felt it felt really really special and this second book is called truth to power so obviously there is a, a link between the two mm-hmm. you're talking about truth mm-hmm. that is what you stand for mm-hmm. i love how 
reading it last night, on the very first page, you kind of casually mention that you have security in your home. Mm -hmm. And you kind of make a joke about your husband being like, it was a bit dramatic. But (laughs) I just, has it always been that way that you have had that? Or is it particularly worse or bad at the moment? Since Joe died, well, since Joe was killed, Joe Cox uh, was killed, our security in our homes and in our constituencies was heavily ramped up. So lots of different security measures, some of the things that I talk about. But it has definitely, over the last six months uh, with all the Brexit negotiations, it has definitely got worse in London and also in some of our constituencies, not mine particularly, although today, for example, the first thing I had to do this morning was text all of my staff and just say, because my office is an open office because I want the public to come in and get advice and help. And so today is one of the days that it's open and obviously we have, on days like when we have big votes that are about Brexit, like today, my staff are definitely at higher risk. Mm -hmm. So I had to text them this morning to say, you're going to have to take people's addresses when they're outside, not let people in until you've verified who they are. I don't want to treat my constituents, especially you're homeless, you've ended up, you spent the night in the bed and breakfast because you've got nowhere to live. You've come in with your kids and I'm all like, oh, what's your name and address? I don't know if I can help you. This is not the person who I am. You want to put your arms around those people. But yes, and yesterday when leaving Parliament, there were all sorts of protocols about how we were to leave, whether we were safe when we were leaving. And when I walked out, there was a huge crowd of people and one woman said to me, are you happy now like that and I was just like uh uh she was like because you know we're really proud thanks you did a good job today and I said I'm so sorry I thought you were going to hurt me and you can't help but think all the time that somebody is going to jump out and attack you because Mm. yesterday for example I got 20 emails saying I'll get what's coming to me I'm a traitor so yeah it happens a lot yeah (laughs) well at the heart of the book I guess you know it's really urgent this book I feel like there's a lot of people standing up for themselves and speaking out more than ever but (laughs) I think it's important that you do talk about that flip side at the end of the day when I was reading it I was thinking the worst thing that can happen when you speak your truth is that you could get hurt and it's (laughs) like if that wasn't mentioned in the book that would be kind of weird but it's just a shame that you have such a personal experience of that yeah I mean it, it is a shame and actually one of the people that I spoke to in the book is uh, Paul and his mother was uh, Daphne Karana Galazia who was the Maltese journalist who was killed because she spoke truth to power the reality is in the most extreme circumstances it can be dangerous to stand up and be counted but the reality of that is is that if you don't stand up and say your piece and try and fight back you're no more safe you're just Mm. silent and in danger Mm -hmm. you're still no safer the corruption that you might be fighting will still exist you're just not trying to stop it, your family, your livelihood, your health, your well-being, they are all at risk if we allow very, very powerful institutions or even just people who might have individual power over us. You're no more uh, safe by being silent. Mm. Silence won't protect you. It might protect you in the short term. And I think not to address the fact that it can be dangerous. And, it, you know, we're talking about extreme examples. I'm yeah, a member of yeah. Parliament. You know, we're talking about a journalist who was uncovering global exploitation of tax havens and lots of really big issues of the Maltese government. And 
most people in their lives, speaking up will be nowhere near as extreme as that. And in most situations, you aren't at any immediate safety risk. But the reality is, is the more that we're all at risk, the more that we feel for our safety, the more dangerous our society is becoming. Yeah. And these stories, even if some of them are slightly extreme examples, (laughs) all it is is actually just really inspiring because it's saying, well, we should all do more of that because actually if we all do more of it, we won't have these kind of extreme cases where one person is being targeted. Absolutely. Well, I mean, the entire union movement, any sort of solidarity, the suffragettes, every single movement, the civil rights movement, it was never, ever just about one person. Mm -hmm. It was about the fact that more than one person was willing to stand linked arms, shoulder to shoulder. Mm -hmm. And that is definitely true. We have those power in numbers. And you're you're right, you know, as we say that we're talking about very extreme examples in the book, very inspiring examples of people who have stood up against governments, institutions, sought to change generations old laws. But the reality is, is that none of the people in the book are particularly extreme. They're all really ordinary people. And in interviewing some of them, to me, they become these amazing figureheads of brilliant campaigns. And then you rock up at their Mm. two bed semi in Rochdale. You're having a cup of tea and a crumpet with somebody you believe to be an amazing legend. So whilst the situations they find themselves in, in are extreme, and these are people who will fight back, The individuals themselves could not be more ordinary. And I suppose that is the message is Mm. that people are really, really much more powerful than they think they are. Yes, I love that. And one of the kind of case studies interviews that you did around the Harvey Weinstein Stein. Mm -hmm. I always want to say Wankstein. Oh, it's so bad. Please call him um... Harvey Wankstein. That is absolutely brilliant. Zelda, the young woman, but she stood up against him before she had that solidarity. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting in the book where you say, what makes someone courageous? Because is it in our genetics? Mm. Is it how are we made up to be that way? How was it meeting her and talking to her? I mean, Zelda is a brilliant and fascinating woman and nobody's life wouldn't be advanced by spending an hour talking to her. What I found in speaking to almost every single one of the people is a bit like a therapy session. Mm. Every single person who I interviewed, these amazing people, all at the end of the interview, having done me a favour and in Zelda's case, come from a couple of hours away where she lives to Parliament because my schedule is ridiculous to come and talk to me about it they all thanked me for listening to them and were really really grateful which I think is a really interesting point about the hierarchies that even though I was asking them for a favour I was asking for their time and I was impressed by them. The hierarchy in our society where I'm a member of parliament still makes them feel grateful that they get to tell me their amazing story. But talking to Zelda, when you look at her, I think maybe I should have included a picture of her in the book, although I don't... You say that she's very small. She's tiny. She's like a tiny person, like sort of bird-like. And because she's, I don't know, she's got sort of a slightly sort of clipped, posh voice that's very soft and very gentle. You cannot imagine this woman standing up to this huge bull of a man. And Um, because he's famously described as like... Big, big yeah. and really scary. Imposing. And actually what she was saying to me was that, you know, having worked with him for a number of years by the time she stood up to him, and it wasn't like Zelda stood up to him by going public. Zelda literally physically stood up to him. She walked up to him 
and said, what are you doing? What is going on? This is awful. And the image of that in my head when you meet her, because she's so polite in that way that, like, my friends are not that polite to me. You know, the, most of the people I know, I work in politics. People are not sort of clipped and charming. And the idea of this woman being so brave is, I just find her to be one of the most inspiring people. And actually, the, the thing that comes across in the book, unfortunately, in Zelda's case, is some of the things that can go wrong when you speak truth to power Mm -hmm. and how because she was alone and she didn't come out under the cover of all those people 20 years before any of us knew about it she found herself in a situation where had she maybe had a book like mine to read she would have had a guide to what she might need to do but she didn't know what Mm -hmm. to do but courage she definitely definitely had because I suppose to bring it to more of an everyday more mundane everyday life it's you know situation I, I suppose we've all been in those situations where you see something that's just not right maybe on public mm-hmm. transport or mm-hmm. you see someone being racially offensive or you see someone just being really intimidating it is like a weird human nature to, to just try and be safe or like get off the train or mm-hmm. move and what you really should be doing is standing up but how would you go about that sort of situation where you could be putting yourself in danger as we all can with speaking up but how do we push forward with that I mean it's funny isn't it because I'm a, I'm a natural wader in a I'm like you know the have sort you always of, been like that from well, like a I little mean, child I like... think maybe I have I've got three <laughs> older brothers you know I was sort of mercilessly picked on so one less bit look after yourself <laughs> I am a natural wader in a because of years of working at women's aid years and years of working with very vulnerable people some of them very disturbed and very difficult uh, in difficult situations as well as being sort of in front of perpetrators and gang nominals, as we used to say, people in gangs. There you go. I'll stop with the jargon. (laughs) People who are involved in gang violence. I have learnt very quickly to risk assess a situation on the spot and I think that most people can risk assess. So I am a natural wader in error unless I'm with my children, in which case I do everything to try and become invisible. Although I was in Margate recently, very glamorous holiday that I went on to Margate. Which Love has Margate. Got, got so bloody trendy, hasn't it? I mean, I went to Gay Pride in Margate and um, it was late at night and I was with my husband and two of my friends, adult friends, and both of my children. I was in the off-licence, buying a bottle of wine. And as I came out, my husband said to me, I'm a bit, hang on, can we just hold on a second? I'm a bit concerned about this woman because there was he believed that he was uh, witnessing a domestic violence situation. And he said, just wait here a second. They're just, I can't tell if they're just shouting at each other or if she's in danger. My kids were there and I just handed him the bottle of wine that I'd just bought and I said, just take the kids home immediately because I can risk assess that I can't control my emotions when my children are there and I will worry about them and I won't be focused on the safety aspect of it and so I made my husband take my children off and myself and my friend uh, Alex we walked up the road to try and find the woman because Mm -hmm. I don't think you can walk away from that but I can't be safe if I can't feel like I can focus on the issue if my children are with me now if you are deeply frightened by a situation and you think that you're going to be harmed in a situation you shouldn't jump up Mm. but the reality is is that you're most likely not in danger. What I know from years of working with difficult people and people with real issues is that nine times out of ten, if you're not involved in the situation, you're not a problem to them, they're not bothered by you. So you can calm a situation down. Violent men who are attacking their wives and partners, they're cowards. They're not going to attack somebody like me if you wade in. But you have to be very, very careful and know that. And I have had years of training in such things. But on the 
bus, if somebody's got their bloody music on and everybody's looking around like, oh gosh, isn't that annoying? It is okay to say to them, turn your goddamn music off. This is the bus. Yeah. I don't sometimes... know why people are bothered by that. I don't know why people aren't just like, dude, yeah. switch it off, man. And sometimes I, I try and tell myself, and I hope this isn't offensive to anyone, it's <laughs> genuinely a compliment. I try and be more American about it. Yeah. But I... also channeling an older woman, like an elderly, not even a woman, yeah. just someone old, because I feel like they don't give a shit. They'll just oh, be yeah. like, move or like, get out of my way. Or just... They recently shut the uh, police station front desk in the bit of Birmingham that I work in. And I, I, I'm fairly convinced it's entirely because my mother in law used to drag teenagers in there every five minutes. She's like, anyone who said anything to her in the, in the high street, she'd be like, the police will hear of this. Absolutely brilliant. Um, yeah, she, she wouldn't. I mean, you're yeah, absolutely right. Yeah. So, but- older women. Just strident working class woman on doorstep. Let's yes. let's all be all strident. All more of that. That yeah. is absolutely the goal. I mean, it's interesting. I think every time I don't speak up, I do feel like I'm not doing my job as a feminist or just a person. But what about when you're on your own and you're like in the taxi and the taxi man or normally mm-hmm. a man who's being well, abusive, a man. <laughs> um, saying something really questionable or just being quite angry? I feel like I want to speak up, but for some reason I can't, and I'm just silent in the back, like nodding along. I mean, pick your battles is absolutely the truth don't bother trying to change the minds of people that you can't by just being righteous and better than them in your own head because it, it just simply won't work as i think uh the prime minister of our country has uh just found out that bullishness will not convince anybody however i think there are ways that you can chat with people and taxi drivers is a really good example so i recently stood up for the lgbt community against a group of religious and in this particular case uh, where i I live in Birmingham, a group of Islamic parents, and actually most of them weren't parents at the school, but that's by the by, who were anti-LGBT issues being taught in school. And by issues, I mean saying that people have two mums. That was it. And I've had a lot of conversations with taxi drivers about that in Birmingham since. And when I say I'm sorry, I just don't agree with you, you know, there isn't a gay mafia that's trying to stop the world being populated, for example. It's okay. They laugh along. We're really terrified because of the feral nature of the internet to disagree with people. And it's okay. I mean, I literally disagree with my husband on a rolling hourly basis. And I still love him deeply. Yeah. We have become terrified to say, do you know what? That's that's rubbish. And also, some of the culture, you know, the sort of check your privilege culture, which is absolutely right and totally progressive in lots of ways, makes people feel, for example, that they can't talk to, over the Brexit thing, lots of people think, oh gosh, I wouldn't want to talk to this, to a group of white working class men about this. And it's just like, they're not monsters, just have a chat with them. That really worries me that we've got to the cultural position where people feel like they can't say anything for whatever reason, because it's not their place. And also, we've got to the point where we think if we say anything, we're going to basically be called a feminazi whore back because that's what we've got used to on the internet. And that is a terrible crucible, silencing crucible that has been designed by someone to shut us up. Don't let it shut you up. I disagree with people in my constituency all the time. People come in and say absolutely wild things that just simply aren't true. I remember a woman on a doorstep once said to me, I'm not sure about those Romanians because I think that they might be coming over here. 
because I heard that in schools in Romania, they're training people, they're training kids before they move to Britain to steal from supermarkets. So I said, I'm just going to play this back to you, what you just said to me. You think that in Romania, a deeply religious country, that in schools, they've got a mocked up Tesco where they're teaching people to stick a Mars bar up their sleeve. Does that sound likely? She said, well, when you say it like that, it does sound quite unlikely. She didn't say, how dare you? Get off my doorstep. You're a disgrace because you disagree with me. People like to disagree. Yes, I love a debate. I love exactly. I love to come away from an argument either going, I still feel like I'm right, or coming away from an argument going, I learnt something new, or just, it's it's a human thing. And I think... That's exactly why Twitter is weird. But once you get over the fact that if someone disagrees with you, it doesn't mean you're an awful person and they hate you forever. Mm. Like, let's just... And and so when a taxi driver says something awful and sexist or racist or whatever, you don't have to be clutch your pearls and be like, you're bloody racist. Pull over now, driver. I'll get a different car. You don't have to do that. You can just say, come on, mate, that's not okay," Or just say, you know, that is, in my experience, that is not true. With the privileged conversation, it is easier to speak power to truth when you're at the top, of course. you know, of that kind of layered intersection. You would think so, wouldn't you? You would, in almost everything, the people with the least power are the people where intersecting issues such as class, race and gender and sexuality will come into it. Absolutely. Except that in this particular instance, people who speak up are much, much more likely to be one of those people mm. because... They've got a lot of practice of not being heard. And so almost, I really was like desperately trying not to just make the book about brilliant women who stand up for themselves and to include men who had done it because obviously there are men who do it and there are some historic examples of of brilliant, I mean, look at like, you know, talking about Martin Luther King and, and people like that. There are men who definitely stood up and spoke truth to power. And we need the men to help. Yeah, we definitely need the men to help. But the reality, is is that the more marginalised a group you seem to come from whether that's about class or gender or race the more likely it is that you are going to have shit happen to you and then mm-hmm. have to stand up to that shit so you get a bit of practice so of the people interviewed in the book most of them were women uh, in Paul's case it was about his mother Daphne who had stood up true to power Tom Watson standing up against the Murdoch media yes. I suppose is one of the exceptions but of those women Half of them were BME women. And it's not by my design or desire to represent them. It is because people who are put upon are usually much more revolutionary yes. is the yes, reality. Yes. But and you're it's more abs- impressive and more brave because it, actually it's in oh, some you, ways... To get over that barrier, I mean, yeah. like Zelda being an example, Zelda is a, is a white woman, and as I've said, has quite a posh voice. But it, it, aside from her posh voice, which I did in the interview say, how did you get to sound so posh? You don't have a particularly posh up- upbringing. Her mum died when she was three years old and she was raised by her grandparents. These are often people who have had challenges in their lives who find a way to keep going and can mm. cope with challenge and cope with difficulty. Uh, the the Grenfell Tower families, you know, they didn't ask for any of this. Uh, and they, you know, Natasha, who I uh, interviewed, she didn't want to be seen as being like, you know, sort of marginalised woman. But the reality is, is that she had been marginalised because of her gender, because of her race, because of her um, class, which is one of the reasons that had led to the tragedy that befell them. 
so normally I would totally agree with you that it is actually, it is, of course, much harder for those people to be heard by power and to gain power. And I suppose the conclusion of the book is trying to get people to realise that one of the ways to really fight power is to take that power and become one of those people with those positions. Mm. But the reality is, is that actually fighting power and speaking truth to power, in my experience, is usually done by people in one of the intersectional groups we normally think wouldn't Mm-hmm. have the wherewithal to do it because they're much much better practiced and much more likely to be treated like shit yes and i love the bit in the book about when you talk about this time we're in where we can start a petition we can start mm-hmm. a podcast we can speak up more than ever now mm-hmm. and and i i was thinking back to that you know that weird time where you'd have to like write into a magazine <laughs> and they might reply to you or they might publish your your little thing that you need to say whereas now we're on twitter every day having our say you know it's not like the gatekeepers are gone to a certain extent Mm -hmm. when it comes to having a voice but it was interesting from your expert situation saying that a petition isn't the only thing you know it it doesn't actually change things just clicking and signing we need to do more yeah in and of itself but if that is all you can do and all you feel you can do then absolutely crack on it is one thing and uh, you know people like me today i will get hundreds and hundreds of emails that say support cutting beer duty or don't you must get so that. many yeah oh my gosh. God. the amount i know about the neonicotinoids in bees and i mean i have learned so much about animal welfare from emails yeah, you get a lot. You get a huge amount. Funnily enough, you don't very often get them about people. You get them about institutions and you get them about animals. So you'll get them about the NHS rather than mm. an individual or a case or you very rarely get them about women, I have to say. And anyway, that's a, that is a different topic. Uh, donkeys... Oh my women. god! Isn't that the like the richest charity or something? Yeah. I, I actually have a friend whose grandmother left all her money to a donkey and not to her, and she is so annoyed still. Oh my gosh! But I mean, you my... can't really complain, you know, about not getting someone's money, but it's just. I mean, yeah, no, that is absolutely brilliant. And my father, who never believed in a penny of inheritance, would be, thri- is really yeah. thrilled. I by don't really believe thrill. in inheritance. Well, of course, well, I, nobody I... should believe in inheritance. No, like you know, Sting. <laughs> It's the only example I have. But he came out to the papers saying, um, you know, I'm spending every penny of what I've made. And I'm like, yes, yeah, Sting. Too, right? Although he'd have a job. It'd be like Brewster's millions. I should imagine he's got loads of cash. He'll have to buy some really unnecessary and super superfluous things. And he really cares about the rainforest, so he should really think on that. Yeah, actually, maybe he should give it. It doesn't mean you have to spend it all yourself. Yeah, yeah. to me, or maybe I'm different to Sting in that when I think of spending all my money, I'm basically in Poundland buying plastic rubbish. So he probably has a... Higher standard <laughs> he's going to spend his millions. Oh, Sting's kids, are, they'll be fine. Yeah. Um. <laughs> They've already had an inbuilt issue with that. But where were we before we started um, talking so about So my, my final yeah, question, so, yeah. um, so I wanted to ask about you specifically because obviously you are someone that stands up every single day of your life to power. And I actually interviewed a midwife recently who said that she kind of, she writes a resignation letter in her head some days, really bad days, but she never quits because she, at the end of the day, loves Mm. her job and loves the NHS. And I just wondered, do you ever have those days where you like write that I'm going to leave letter in your head or 
Are I don't you... just write it in my head. <laughs> I'll write it on paper one day. I shall publish. Many, many years of resignation notes that I wrote and didn't send. Also, I wish that there was a suppository for the tweets that you go, do you know what? You've just gone too far and you delete it before oh, you send the it. Yeah, yes. the draft. Yeah. There should be some way of keeping those moments where you go, hang on a minute. <laughs> Even by your crazy standards, <laughs> this is too much. But yeah, I mean, I write uh, resignation letters I think in the past year I've written two where I have just been like, do you know what, I can't do this anymore. And then you ring around a load of people and say, "Uh, I can't do this anymore. And they all maybe feel the same, but people talk you down off a ledge. Mm -hmm. There are moments in my job where I just wish that I could go back to working at Women's Aid and directly helping people which you do get to do half of my job is directly helping people in Birmingham and that is the bit that I really love but if I'm stuck in Westminster for even more than five days those resignation letters I'm like that oh my god I'm gonna type up another one it's a bit like diary entries isn't it, it makes me feel better and to it's, know it's there yeah, it's and sort of valedictory you have a choice. like as well you always end with a flourish I think that uh, you know some of the events that we've seen in Parliament uh, over the last few weeks is that you know everybody's getting their president of independence day in the film everyone's getting their moment where they get to be the president and make that speech at the end like i will put the country first um so they're almost definitely very self-indulgent my resignation letters that i write it's probably why they'll never see the light of day but yeah i do quite a good idea for a a book book the the millions of resignations yeah sort of like a a memoir of parliament but through resignation that's the obvious things that have annoyed me there would be a big chapter on some members of the Labour Party and many on Boris Johnson. <laughs> God, it would be... I, I think some mem- the memoirs from people who have left the system and can just be totally honest. Yeah. It's quite interesting. Yeah, it is. Although I'm thinking David Cameron's, I think interesting, might do some heavy lifting. I won't be reading that, actually. I don't think anybody's <laughs> going to read it. I literally don't know who's going to read it. I mean, the Daily Mail will do one a headline. We'll all look at that, maybe, and then we'll move on. Exactly. We're going to read, literally, the excerpts <laughs> in the mail. And like you say, not even the actual text. <laughs> just no. going to read the headline and the subheading. Because we know what happened at the end of that. Because we, David Cameron, are left living with it <laughs> while you're fannying about in a shed. Um, <laughs> oh, my God, it's still haunts us all it does um, but yeah I, I sometimes want to walk away I, I sometimes just want to watch Parks and Rec all day and believe that everybody is Leslie Nope in the world and that everybody is fundamentally good and that I can just ignore the other stuff I do yeah. that all the time and I think this book though is you can tell this is almost like a reminder to all of us and I felt like almost it's kind of you saying this is why I do this yeah it is and it is worth it at the end of the day it is like a midwife delivering a baby that must be the most amazing feeling you know the, the high you get when you actually manage to change a law. I sometimes want to genuinely cartwheel down the corridors of Portcullis House in in Westminster. And it's really dry sometimes, so it's really hard to get really chuffed about it and get other people to understand why you're chuffed. Little party poppers. Yeah, yesterday on WhatsApp, I have a WhatsApp group called Nuff Love with my six best girlfriends. And yesterday, I'm currently taking part in a court case against the Prime Minister. Uh, In speaking truth to power, I've taken it to the courts. And... I was really trying to get them to understand perjury and affidavits. 
And so I just basically wrote uh, a whole thing about the good wife. And they were like, oh, I think it's really brilliant what you're doing. And then they were like, I hope you're going to wear a shift dress. <laughs> My friend Jess was like, you've got to shift the shit out of this. Yes. So I'm going to wear a shift dress to court on Thursday. <laughs> Sweet truth to power in a shift, shift dress. dress yeah. I love that. Thank you so much, Jess. And congratulations on another brilliant book and just everything that you do. Thanks We're so all much. very grateful for you. Oh, well, thanks. 